You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real traveler reviews give the inside scoop from people who've already been on the experiences you're considering. So you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected. And 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. The future is a hefty responsibility and not one that we take lightly. But then taking things lightly has never been what hefty is about. That's why we've created the Hefty Renew program that turns hard to recycle plastics into valuable resources like park benches and building materials. To participate, simply fill up an orange Hefty Renew bag with accepted items, tie it up, and drop it in with your regular recycling. That's it. It's that easy. It's time to rethink recycling with Renew. Particular valued resources may vary by geography. More info available at heftyrenew.com. But we got what it takes for the cycle to break. Revolution lives in me. guys welcome to the untamed and unashamed podcast this is a place where together we can navigate through life's ups and downs with all of the vulnerability compassion and openness that we can muster along with the help of guests from all walks of life we'll discover new truths while doing some unlearning and we'll gain valuable tools for becoming who we already are while also uncovering our divine gifts i'm jade bryce and i'm so thankful that you're here So today, we're having a man whose work has been nothing short of transformative in my life on as a guest. Since I first met him, I was drawn to how his presence alone is healing medicine. He was, I think, the second or third guest on my first podcast, and then I interviewed him every year after that. And so this is actually my fourth time interviewing him. And it's been a year since I've started this one, and it's the first time, so I'm a little behind schedule. (laughs) But he has a way of making people feel seen, heard, and held. And that's what we're all really looking for, and that's what makes him so healing. Uh, And after sharing with him some of my darkest and most vulnerable truths in the past, I can still say the same about him, while also adding that he has a way of helping remove the shame in the most graceful and empathetic ways. When I was being called to heal some really deep trauma from my early years of life, my soul said his name. And after sitting with him while processing that trauma, it is so obvious why my soul said his name. Not only do I trust his integrity so deeply that I think that that's why I was so held in the container because so much of my wounding was from the masculine. And so a masculine who I really trusted holding the space, I think is what allowed for, for so much healing. And on top of that, he's just so incredible at trauma work and his understanding of the psyche is just mind blowing. And I will truly never be the same after that session. It was actually a starting point 
for the woman that I am currently walking as, and I know that I will continue to say the same in years to come. That session with him is what empowered me to step into the work that I am currently doing in women's sexuality. But outside of that, his posts, his podcasts, and weekly blogs add so much growth and magic to my life. And by just knowing that this king exists, inspires me, and makes me feel more able to step fully into my queen. Also, I asked him what he wanted to talk about today, and he said, anything you want to bring up, we can find the philosophy in. And that's something I adore about him. No matter the topic, he knows he can have a heart-to-heart on it and find some depth in it. He is a podcaster, a Jungian enthusiast, a storyteller, a myth weaver, a dream interpreter extraordinaire, student of plant medicine, healer and medicine man himself, longtime supportive friend, and one of my greatest teachers. Using cognitive, evolutionary, and Jungian psychology, he helps people discover, articulate, and change the stories that rule their lives. He is a way shower and trailblazer in what it means to be human, and I genuinely believe that this guy is doing the work that will be a part of history forever and is changing the landscape of psychotherapy. He reminds me that it's our work to do what we can to remember the soul, to remember the love that's at the heart of how and why we heal. Please help me welcome my favorite magician, my favorite warrior, the king, the lover, Eric Gotzi, to Untamed and Unashamed. Hello, Jade. Thank you for having me on. Yeah. I'm so, it's been, I think, a year and a half since I've interviewed you, but my fourth time. So I'm really excited. Um, I know last time I interviewed you, you were pretty deep in studying trauma. I mean, I think you have been probably every time I've interviewed you, you're studying trauma, but it was, you were going um, into the different types of trauma, the different types of healing. I'm curious what you are deep into right now. Yeah, what I'm currently exploring is um, something that I see, and it actually links back to trauma, is uh, that there's a modern confusion between the literal and the metaphorical. And I think it's at the heart of conspiratorial thinking. I think it's at the heart of some of the uh, quote unquote culture wars around like uh, really controversial things that I'm not prepared to talk about clearly yet because I'm still trying to figure it out. Mm -hmm. Um, And that I think the place that we can see that confusion most manifest is in how we treat the psyche with a literal uh, mathematics and logic-based science, Mm -hmm. because our science has only gotten more and more clear on the things that science can get clear on, and our collective mental health has just gotten worse and worse and worse. Mm -hmm. It feels there's this interesting movement that, like, I feel I see that with the introduction of psychedelics into the culture, the intensity of the mythic, which is like the landscape of human experience that we use metaphor and symbol to try to understand, has gotten so turned up that it's confused a lot of people about um, applying literal maps like blank is real to the metaphorical map. And I think it's uh, what happens with psychotic breaks. 
I think it's what happens uh, when you do a little bit too much. And I see something that's happening in our current culture where there's a lot of good-hearted people that can feel that there's stuff sincerely wrong with culture and they want to help make it better. But a lot of them, like they're using mythical language as if it's literal to try to talk to the people who are still in the literal. And so like the star seed trying to talk to the politician or, um, you know, the conspiracy theorist trying to talk to uh, a fucking scientist. And there's this massive confusion that ultimately, like there's a quote I heard today, and it's, uh, if you lose the ability for conflict, you lose the ability for unity. And it's like, we don't even know how to talk to each other to try to see if our maps make sense. Because there's these two dimensions of life, you could say it's like, all the things that help you navigate space time, you know, which is like, if my body's in the middle of the street, move out of the fucking way and we have physics and chemistry and science that can help people navigate that map better than any other language that human that humanity has developed mm -hmm. but when it comes to the psyche when it comes to the place that myth and the language of myth is best able to navigate people um we don't have like a universal language we also don't even know that what we're talking about is useful, you know, because most people think myth equals lie. And that is probably the easiest way to see that we are confused about what myth is able to offer. Mm -hmm. And the other thing that's super interesting is like, if someone says it's hot as shit outside, everyone instantly knows how to parse that that is a metaphorical statement. Mm -hmm. Like, Maybe someone who is on the Asperger spectrum would be the only outlier there, but 99.99% of people know that your friend is not making a statement about the absolute temperature of shit. Yeah. They're talking about how like it's, it's super hot outside. Mm -hmm. But when it comes to like big things, like, uh, you know, some controversial things for your listeners might be like um, that, like Jesus literally did his miracles. And I, and I don't know that that's not true, but, um, or that people are aliens and that they come from the planet X, Y, and Z. Like, I think mythically, if you understand what that means mythically, you won't get into the weirdness and you can hold on to the beauty. Mm -hmm. But where it gets really weird is that if people express that as if it's a literal statement and they do two things, they are going they make it impossible to talk to people who are on the literal map when they try to do that. But they also rob themselves of what the mythic would provide by trying to make it literal. Mm -hmm. And probably the best representation of this is fundamental uh, Christianity arose in response to Darwin's on the origin of species. I feel like you read my outline, even though I didn't send it to you. <laughs> <laughs> Perfect. <laughs> but just to close that point is, and I know I've been yapping, but yeah, um, go ahead. that fundamental or uh, Christian fundamentalism, and this is research according to James Cars, who was a, a religious studies professor, 
um, he wrote an incredible book called The Religious Case Against Belief. Mm. But that, um, that the first fundamentalism was something that didn't exist before the origin of species came out. And the way that he tries to articulate this, because it's hard to articulate, is that the rise of science that culminated with on the origin of species demonstrated that the mathematic and logical game of trying to map space-time was so effective that most of the people who believed in it completely discarded the mythical realm of life. Mm -hmm. Like, they got so good at navigating the literal dimension of life, which is space-time, mm -hmm. and just completely removed the myth. And then they were... You know, if you imagine it's like sports teams competing against each other, the science team was crushing it. Like they were the champions. They were the ones that like had the majority of the power. Now, of course, it's more complex than that. And then for the first time in like the games, in the league of competing worldviews, a team played the move fundamentalism and I'm anthropomorphizing groups of people. It's not like it was a coordinated effort, but <laughs> where uh, fundamentalist Christians like took what science did, which is we can explain everything with our literal map and there isn't a metaphorical realm and here is our story. Mm -hmm. And the fundamentalist arm of Christianity was like, we're doing that too. And... um this is according to James Carson. I don't know if I fully believe, like, because it at least feels to me that there were belief systems before this that were trying to put themselves forth as literal. But I think the key here is that even in those literal, um, or even in those older books, they didn't have the inner story that uh, it was equivalent to what science was trying to do. And Christi or fundamentalist Christianity was the first one to do that, according to James Cars. Mm -hmm. And so I think that that was the beginning of this like massive fraying of people's ability to do what we do in conversation all the time, which is to intuitively parse the literal and the metaphorical. And I think it's the root of... Um, a lot of the bullshit that keeps us from being able to talk to each other about what we think is going on. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Thank you. Um, so I, I don't think I've um, seen you around lately to like really chat, but um, sometime at the beginning of this year, I had come to the realization that I'm on the spectrum and uh, it made so much of my life make sense. A few times that it was brought up to me when I was younger, it was in a very disempowering way by like um, my a parent when they were being uh, punishing or a youth pastor when they were trying to disempower me. And then um, when I came around to it this year, it actually was in a very empowering way. But I saw how I struggle with making things so literal um, because of how my brain works. And uh, that was a big part of the wound that 
I feel like every year at the start of the year, my soul's like, gives me a little like peek into some trauma and is like, you ready? Is this the one you want to work on this year? And of course I always say yes. Um, I know when I, the year that I was doing work with you, it was my sexual trauma. And this year it was my religious wounding. And I think that one of the reasons why my wounding is so deep is because not only was I taught to understand the Bible in such a literal way, but I, the way my brain works, it like made it almost to where like, it was easier to pray on that, you know? Um, and so I want to talk a bit about that. Um, when it comes to the 10 cognitive distortions, especially because I can see how now I'm doing the same thing, but on the opposite end. Um, so, um, so my big work this year with healing my religious wounding, um, it feels like it's not an accident that I'm also being surrounded by a lot of Christians. And uh, my teacher, Layla Martin, gave me the assignment of make it to where you can be on a deserted island with Christianity and you could make peace with it. Mm. And every time I think I've gotten closer, I realize I'm actually really far away from it. And there are times I just want to get off the fucking island. Like I don't, I, I don't want to do this assignment. Um, for example, a well-known podcaster posted an article he wrote about practicing plant medicine as being, I, a, I know what you're talking about. Okay. I, oh, great. Then I would love to hear your thoughts on it, but he posted about how in a sense, it's a lack of trust in God and he feels it's even sin or in his terms, missing the mark, which is what sin is translated into. Right. So when other people share this article, I get so fucking triggered because, um, to me, it's like condemnation of people's chosen path of healing and even condemnation for their chosen path to God. And that's what my religious wounding specifically is. It's dictating. It was my path to God. My worship was so heavily dictated. Um, my husband was chosen for me. My like everything was chosen for me by this yeah. religion. And I want to apply these cognitive distortions to my relationship with dogmatic religion. Um, and I also see like how I said, I've just, now I'm just on the other end. Like before, when I was in that religion and I was taking everything literal, the great commission, God is the, you know, Jesus is the only way I was going door to door as a teenager, asking people to say the sinner's prayer with me. Like I had the savior <laughs> complex. Wow. Like that was me. I was 16 yeah. years old and I would try to hit like a hundred doors a night. Cause I wow. just, I had this fear that people were going to hell and I, yeah. I wanted to save them. And now I'm on the other end trying to save those people who are doing it. So I'm still, I still right. have, you know what I mean? Yeah. yeah. So I have something that I think might help. Um, also a book that James Cars wrote that is one of the most incredible books I've ever read. It feels like a modern day Tao Te Ching and it's mm -hmm. called Finite and Infinite Games. And it is a fucking gem. And he opens with, uh, there are two types of games, finite and infinite games. Finite games are played to, to end. They have a specific endpoint, and it produces titles and winners. An infinite game is played to continue play. So all finite games are played to be brought to an end. Infinite games are played so that play can continue. Mm -hmm. Uh, I'm going to give you the uh, core, and it's existence is the only infinite game, and the infinite game is for it to continue to play. 
and all of us are at our core an infinite player everything else that we do that's not play that allows the play to continue for as many players as possible are finite games belief systems that uh don't leave room for the mystery so any belief system that claims to know period is a finite game because it has boundaries and the boundaries are known there's a central authority that tells you what the boundaries are you're taught how to act at the boundaries and if you act not in accord with the rules you get placed outside of the group mm -hmm. and the way it's used in conversations is to bring the conversation to an end you know it's not improv it's not jazz it's not kids playing outside it's me against you and i have my finite game in my head it's my belief system and i'm trying to either convert you to mine or to make you shut the fuck up you know like that's how a lot of people use this mm -hmm. all finite players are infinite players who have forgot that they have forgot and so if you're on the island with christianity the key is to remember it's a finite game and you're an infinite player it's not to force yourself to continue to forget so you believe that the finite game is the way because mm -hmm. the way that I see it is <clears throat> uh, if you are humble and you study um, perceptual psychology and you start to learn how our visual system is not a camera processing objective reality and then you start to look at uh, behavioral psychology and behavioral economics and you see the hundreds of studies that show that we have evolved to deceive ourselves um, that all of us think that we're smarter than the average person all of us mm -hmm. um, well like 90 percent plus we all think we're more attractive than the average person we all think that we're going to be more successful than the average person we all think that we are less susceptible to being tricked than the average person and that the average person is much more susceptible to being tricked. And there's just hundreds of studies. It's like rapture mentality. Right. And if you go too far into that, uh, I almost lost my mind, you know, because if you think that there's any system of epistemology that knows and that there's no mystery, you're going to bump into the mystery and it's going to fuck you up. And belief systems that don't have room for the mystery are finite games. And like, there's a mystical tradition to every major religion. And the mystical traditions of that religion kept the mystery alive. So these are the Sufis, these are the Gnostics, these are the Kabbalah, you know, like of the three main Abrahamic religions. But the formal, like, you have to do this. And you have to do this. And if you don't do this, like no one ever who has ever existed knows what happens after you die. Mm -hmm. It is a belief that if you don't do X, you go to hell forever after you die. Um, as an infinite player, you can allow those people to have those games. Now where it gets weird. So the thing about finite games as they apply to belief systems is they almost always have an infidel 
or an evil other or or some group of people that are the worst possible type of people because of how the belief system is structured. They're placed outside of the belief system and that belief system gets enough power and enough people who believe in the finite game of it and they forget that they have forgot that they're infinite players. It can lead to war and violence and crusades and terrible things. And so a part of being an infinite player is developing your um, competence to the point where if a belief system starts to get like that, you can play with it in a way that allows for the continuation of play, which is the continuation of life. Because to get intense for a moment, most of our life, we have finite gamed each other. But the moment we developed atomic weapons, and now that our finite game of some combination of capitalism and consumerism and globalization and the industrial revolution and the information revolution, it's all like one big thing. The momentum of that is destroying the planet. We also are, all the major governments are competing with each other to develop weaponized AI first. And then there's also the decentralization of how complex it is to create biological weapons. These are known as the four existential risks that are facing humanity. We're getting to the point where if we continue to play the finite game of belief systems and countries and all that shit, we might end play for all players on the planet. And so I think it's imperative that we learn how to remember that we're infinite players. Hmm. Yeah. Um, can you speak to how, um, when you like, so for me, I think the trigger is like, um, fearing the damage that that can do. So like, how do you find the dance of like, um, trying to breathe. I don't know that it's even art. Okay. Art. So the damage there's psychological damage and there's space time damage. Space time mm -hmm. damage is like if someone hits you or if someone shoots you or if a bomb goes off, etc. Psychological damage requires that you believe. Like it requires that you enter into the finite game. Mm -hmm. And like the ultimate infinite players when it comes to belief systems, which is essentially like culture or the, or the zeitgeist are artists because a great artist is showing you a beautiful aperture into a new story, into a new way of seeing the world, into a new belief system. Mm -hmm. And it's presented as play, you know, so like great music, great movies, poems, all of those things are, in my opinion, the most powerful way to respond to um, the quote-unquote psychological damage that can come from finite uh, belief systems. And I think in our culture, the people who, because one of the things that's happening in our culture is there's a rigidity around the walls of the current belief systems in our culture, and they're frictioning up against each other, and it's creating tension and heat, the like boundary transformers are comedians. Mm -hmm. Like if you look at what's happening in the quote unquote culture wars, uh, comedians are kind of in like in the middle, you know, like mm -hmm. they're making jokes about the thing. Mm -hmm. And humor uh, 
when used in an infinite way, is one of the best forms of art. But humor can also be used in a finite way where it's meant to shut people up. And that's not the type of humor I'm talking about. Yeah. But the answer is art. Yeah. So um, I'm curious, you knew what article I was speaking about. Like, what were your thoughts around it? Well, I don't know the person uh, personally. Mm -hmm. So um, like I clicked on the link of the book that was referenced and the title of the, or the front cover of the book looks like it was made in MS paint, like in Microsoft paint. Mm -hmm. um, and there's a pentagram with a bong and smoke coming out of the bong. And it's, it's such a hilarious to me personally, but it's because I never, even when I was a kid, when Christianity was presented to me, it never landed in my body as um, the finite game. Mm -hmm. Like it just never landed in me like that. And so it was, it was funny. Now uh, to his point in that article, and this is getting back to what I was talking about at the beginning, a lot of people do not understand the potency that psychedelics are able to amplify the symbolic life in people. And then people conflate the symbolic mythical experiences as literal. Mm -hmm. And I've seen it fuck people up. Yeah. But in my life, and I know a lot of people who have done psychedelics, it is a dramatic net positive. Mm -hmm. And yeah. Like I'm currently reading Electric Kool-Aid Acid Test, which was a book that was written about Ken Kesey uh, back in the 60s. And Ken Kesey was the West Coast equivalent of what Ram Dass and Timothy Leary were doing. It was happening at the same time. And they had no rules. They were just fucking dropping huge amounts of acid and huge groups and having huge parties. And a lot of people were having psychotic breaks. but like, um, like we have come a dramatic long way in learning how to start to give a safe container to these experiences. Yeah. And, um, so I do think that there is a point to his article that I think is worth noting. Mm -hmm. And it's that, uh, there are people who use this in a way that fragments and disorients their life. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think like the fucking scientific studies that have come out in the last 10 years that when you do this in a intelligent container and how it's able to, uh, dramatically re uh, reduce PTSD addiction, like, uh, treatment resistant depression and treatment resistant PTSD and that, you only have to do it a couple of times and the benefits you get from it continue to improve over the course of the next year. Like mm -hmm. we have nothing like this mm -hmm. in our toolkit as psychologists and psychiatrists in, in the country. Um, and because we have a mental health epidemic, I see it as a incredible tool. Mm -hmm. um, but also I see a bunch of people who are literalizing the symbolic and mythical aspects of what psychedelics open up for them. Mm -hmm. And it confuses the fuck out of people. 
Yeah. Yeah. And if there's one thing I've, I've learned from you and from, from my best friend Shadiac is um, what shows up in ceremony and in dreams is to not be taken literal. Like I've told you about ceremonies where you've showed up, but I know it's not you. Um, it's what you represent for me. And um, I'm curious when it comes to myths, you said that most people consider, or a lot of people consider myths as lies. Right. You know, you look at the story of Persephone or Ganesh even, and it's like, well, who's going to believe Ganesh is real, you know, like, and so can you speak a little bit to how, um, how to use myths so that those who see them as lies, because they don't make sense, because those types of creatures don't exist, I guess, in their minds, how, how they can, I guess, use it as medicine. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh. I don't know yet. And I'm trying to figure it out with the um, I'm currently working on like a philosophical essay that's mostly to organize my mind and I'll probably release it and most people won't read it, but it'll be out there for people who uh, they want to go quote unquote, see my work and like see as specific as I'm able to get about the model that I'm using. Mm -hmm. Um, But I'm mainly doing it to organize my own mind. But basically, the way that I see it is uh, the first thing is there seems to be from my observation a sliver of dreams and visions that are literal and so it doesn't make it as easy as we would like it to be Mm. but what i use and what i offer to people is assume it's not unless it's unless it is persistent Mm -hmm. you know like i have had people who um have had very clear uh quote unquote downloads about a child coming and they know the gender of the child and they've been correct. Now, if you apply a skeptical scientific mind to that, which I think it's useful just to have that toolkit. Um, if you're in a relationship and you know, you're trying to have a baby, uh, it's a 50, 50 thing, you know? Mm-hmm. So, but like I've known people who have got those type of downloads for each of the children that they've had and they've been right. Mm-hmm. I also know people who have had those type of downloads and, uh, doesn't come true at all Mm -hmm. and so like one percent of what our nervous system is processing information wise is apprehendable by the conscious mind 99 percent of what our nervous system is doing is processing information and patterns that are beyond the comprehension of our conscious mind and we are incredibly intelligent beings um that's non-conscious like the moment someone walks into the room uh you are flooded with information that you can't consciously articulate and the animal intelligence inside of you that has co-evolved with other humans for millions of years like has this entire reservoir of anticipated patterns And so, like, we know when someone's attracted to us. We know when someone wants to fight us. We know when someone's uncomfortable, all this stuff. And we're constantly taking in the information from our environment and trying to create a map of what the next moment will be like. And I think that dreams and visions, like, that comes from psychedelics, like, they get in there in a way where we're able to see, like, 
the landscape in front of us. And then we become aware of either something we need to heal to move out of a pattern that we're constantly in and our animal body can see the pattern and it might represent the pattern as an ancient story of a witch being burned on a cross. Mm -hmm. I think that that is the psyche trying to represent to the individual that the archetypical truth of that story is an energy that's alive in their life right now. And that if it was made conscious, they could potentially either, you know, choose that's the path I want, or I can transform some core story that it's keeping me in that loop so that that loop is no longer a pattern that I'm acting out in my life. Um, one of the things that I have found that is really powerful is specifically with dreams is that when you have a dream that sticks with you um, to ask yourself, what's the first thing that comes to my conscious mind when I think of the symbol and the first thing that comes to mind tends to be what your psyche was trying to point you to, because the thing that offers your associative thought is your psyche. It is the thing that produced the dream. Now, the thing with psychedelic visions is they seem, at least for me, they seem to come with the answer embedded in it if there's an answer that needs to be embedded in it. The really interesting thing about psychedelic experiences that I think links to trauma is sometimes we just need to feel fully a possible pattern. And then there's this like grieving and expulsion of the full felt emotion of that pattern. And then it's done. You know, like there is a famous example by one of the leading trauma psychologists, uh, Peter Levine, where um, a woman, uh, when she was, so she had panic attacks like her whole adult life. And she started to see Peter Levine and he put her through like a subtle, like, uh, hypnotization to like get her nervous system to relax and her feet started to go up and down and it looked like she was running. Mm -hmm. And, uh, so what he saw was her heart rate got super low as he got her to relax. And the moment it got to like the bottom of relaxation, it got super activated and her eyes got wide and her feet started to run and she was still sitting down in a chair, but her feet were jumping up and down. And he intuitively, based off of, you know, he had a lot of research in studying animals, was uh, he said, there's a tiger behind you, run. And her feet started going faster and faster. And then he said, there's a tree, climb that tree. And her arms started to flail and she mythically went up the tree and she got away from the tiger. And she started to have this huge purge where, she, where her body was like trembling. And for people who know about PTSD, the way the body starts to uh, expel the psychological tension that has been bound is it looks like your limbs are having seizures. And that that's actually it working. Mm. What he found out later is that she recovered her memories, that when she was like six, she had to get some emergency procedure because maybe her appendix or something exploded. And uh, she was terrified while she was going into the operation room and they had to strap her down and they had to give her um, some type of sedative. And if you understand PTSD, uh, that traps it in. Like mm -hmm. if 
if your body is trying to escape and you are with strength or withheld or uh, constrained in some way, mm -hmm. it gets trapped in there. And that's an example of doing a completely mythological act that in no way was real or in no way was literal, um, helped heal something that had literal consequences in the body. And I think where it gets really hard for us is there's a thing in science called the hard problem of consciousness. And it's essentially that um, almost all like uh, really almost all philosophers worth their salt and all scientists worth their salt who in any way try to deal with consciousness, they all admit there's a hard problem of consciousness, which is that we have no model at all that can explain how a biological process in the brain produces experience. Mm. We just take it for granted that there's a correlation between between experience and the things that happen in the brain. And it's because we've had really interesting things that happen where people have parts of their brain that get damaged and specific experiences as measured on the outside don't happen anymore. And so it's not like there is clearly a correlation, but no, there's no model in all of philosophy and all of science that has uh, produced any type of experiment that could be done to verify the model about how a conscious experience arises out of a biological action. And I think that divide is like everything that quote unquote can be measured by the tools of science, you could call like the literal world. And then everything that can't be is the psychic or the mythic world. And for whatever reason, we are beings who can be in both. And the body is the point in the middle where like our beliefs, like the placebo effect is one of the things that science doesn't like to give its due because it fucks up a lot of shit is that you can believe something deeply enough and have the biological processes happen in your body as if you were given the thing that you weren't given, but you believe that you were given it. And so this is something that they have to control for in every psychological experiment that introduces any type of drug where they're trying to measure the outcome of how it impacts experience. Mm -hmm. And yeah. Hmm. Yeah, um, it makes me think about, um, too, like what you brought up with the dreams. Um, a, a ceremony that I had this year when I was, um, when some feelings around everything that I'm working through with the religious wounding came up, I had seen, um, you know, this like, I had this experience where I had, like become Sarah, which is Jesus and Mary's, it's not in the Bible, but their daughter and like felt their, the pain of how their story was altered and misused and um, especially Mary's and, and really like for the most part wiped out for a good part of history. And then I also saw like my native American, my Aztec ancestry and like the pain of um, what 
some of that has caused them as well, like this dogmatic, um, religious and, um, like narrative around, um, Jesus is the only way. Right. And so I like experienced both of those. And so it like gave me some of some understanding, but then like coming out of that ceremony, I thought like, Oh, I have lineage here and here. And maybe like what you said with the woman on the cross, it was just what's actually alive in my body at this moment. It's, it wasn't that. And I have a friend who saw that like she walked with John the Baptist. And so that's why like she has some things show up in her life now, some callings in her life now, but maybe that's just what's alive in her body now. And I can see how even in those things that felt like mysteries, we made them literal, you know? Yeah. And I think a a very interesting thing is uh, the zeitgeist idea that the literal is more useful or real than the mythic is represented in when you say it's just Mm. it's just this yeah and this is the thing that like i think carl jung was trying to articulate and i'm trying to articulate at the core is we have a severe imbalance in our respect for the literal compared to the mythic yeah and that that's represent because that just thing is something that I hear in response almost every time I try to get to this idea. Mm-hmm. And um, it's like, it will only be done through art that I make. Like, it's not going to be like a philosophical because it's such a deep story for almost everyone in our culture because we are embedded our cities are testaments to how how effective the scientific worldview is at creating order. Mm-hmm. And we grew up inside of this culture. We grew up inside of these cities, inside of these walls, and our air conditioning and everything inside of a house is made in proportion to our ego. And most of us don't fucking know how to camp. We don't know how to compost. <laughs> we, we don't know how to grow food. And there's this uh deep uh like almost like amputation of a part of our psyche that you can see the symptom of it when we say just because the thing that i'm trying to convey is it's not just Mm -hmm. it's like the immensity of the psyche and the immensity of myth and symbol is magnificent and infinitely deep and it's hard to navigate in that realm with the expectation of what we've learned in the literal realm which is that if i find the just right language i can understand the whole territory and it's like where i sense a revolution happening in physics and i think it's being led by donald hoffman's uh work are you familiar with who that is and what he's doing i don't think so all right so donald hoffman is a cognitive psychologist who has taken who has taken uh the mathematics that express the theories of evolution he's put them inside of computer simulation game theory tests 
which is where you create different organisms based off of code. You create a game environment that is um, created by the equations of evolution. And then you run tests between different type of organisms and see which one outcompetes the other one. And the study that he did was he did, I, I believe it's like 100,000 simulations on a computer between organisms that were coded to optimize for perceiving objective reality versus organisms who have evolved to perceive fitness. And what he found is that in 99.99% of the games that he played, the organism that was optimized to perceive fitness always outcompeted the organisms that were optimized to perceive objective reality. Therefore, his claim is that uh, we have not evolved to perceive objective reality. Most scientists believe that we've evolved to see a little, just enough of objective reality to survive. What he is saying is, no, there is zero percent of us perceiving objective reality. The metaphor he uses is that we have evolved to create a user face that has icons on it. And so the example that he gives is the computer right now. Uh, if you were to write an email, there's some icon for email and you click on it and you write it and then you send the email. The objective truth of that is that there are electrodes and conductor gates in the circuit of your computer that based off of the keystrokes and the things that you're doing on the screen, open and close these electron gates to let electricity move in a certain way that's represented as ones and zeros that is then coded into a programming language that is then coded into a operation system like Mac, and then you get icons. And the example he uses is that if you take a file and you put it over your trash can bin, you didn't throw away that. You didn't delete that. You drug an icon that then went over this trash can and your computer erased the code connected to whatever that icon was. Mm. And so table, human, car, grass, plant, all this shit, they're icons. Now the icons are somehow bound usefully to objective reality or otherwise we wouldn't be here, but nothing that we perceive is actually the objective truth. And this dude is talking to like the top physicists and mathematicians in the world and uh his kind of like his endpoint you know bomb drop moment is that space time as a theory of objective reality is dead hmm. that the entire like um most leading edge quantum physicists understand this but it's something that hasn't gotten into the culture at large but that Science for a long time has thought that um, it was mapping objective reality. And what he's introducing is that we aren't. That it is not possible for us to perceive um, objective reality. And that I think that, like, 
a part of the mythic confusion is that science has gotten so big for so long where most of us think that it's mapping objective reality. And it's not. Yeah. And I just want to be clear. Math is, or uh, science, specifically the scientific method coupled with mathematics and logic, is the best map that we've ever created for trying to make sense of the user interface that we've evolved to be within when we're interacting with the objective world that we can't actually directly apprehend ever. It's no secret that shame, free, sex, and pleasure are powerful avenues to deeper connections and an overall sense of well-being. And accessible, expertly designed toys can play a big part in getting you there and making you feel more alive. Dame is leading a sexual wellness revolution as a women-powered resource for game-changing pleasure products and supportive content. Started by a sex educator and an engineering whiz, Dame develops her products based on research and feedback from people like you. They're making better sexual experiences and more pleasure available to all. Dame's easy-to-use toys and accessories are made with body-safe, doctor-approved materials and smart design principles, and they've earned glowing praise from the New York Times, the Today Show, and many more, including me. Whether you're looking to shake things up with your partner or upgrade your self-care routine, they've got something for every nightstand. Even better, Dame offers three-year warranties and hassle-free returns within 60 days, so your satisfaction is literally guaranteed. And I will guarantee you satisfaction because I use their products myself. They're amazing. My favorite one is their suction toy. I call it the clit sucker, but it's uh, spelt A-E-R. It's called air. It's a powerful arousal tool for fans of oral stimulation. It creates thrilling pulses of air and a soft seal around your clitoris. So you can go all the way right away. Guys, I have like eight to 10 orgasms almost every time I use it. I use it during sex and in my own pleasure practice. You will not be disappointed. They're also sending me a bunch of their other products. So I'll keep you updated. But as of right now, this one's my favorite and I highly recommend it. Go to dameproducts.com and use code Jade today for 15% off your order with Dame. Now on with the show. Going back to the myths part, I'm curious um, just to like close off that little piece before we move into something else. Um, these stories about Kali or ISIS, these myths, what are they? Are they, right. um, and, and is it partly how we, sh how the Bible could most be useful? Right. Okay. So, um, because I want to say really quickly, there are times that I call in and I can see how some people could see this could be dangerous or tricky because anything could show up and just say it's Kali. But there are times I can call in the spirit of ISIS or whatever it is, whatever that archetype is, while I'm dancing or while I'm pleasuring. And it's there. 100%. You know, and so. Right. right. So um, we were non-linguistic creatures for millions of years. Like if you go back through our evolutionary history, we were interacting with other creatures um, for millions of years. In our evolution, in our DNA is some type of record that I don't understand where like 
we tore something apart with our face where we have seen every type of savage thing that has ever been done, you know, from an animal to an animal, where we've done almost every heroic thing that an animal can do to defend itself against some other animal. We have felt the absolute epitome of the feeling of being prey. We have felt the absolute epitome of being a predator. Uh, We have felt what it feels like to watch a loved one die, like in our DNA. We have felt what it feels like to be a father and a mother and a crone and a maiden and a warrior and a hunter and a gardener and an inventor and all those things. And I don't know what the material mechanism is that brings that forward, but it seems to be somehow bound in our DNA. And one of the hallmarks of uh, a misstep of science is they see something in the body and they're like, oh, it doesn't do anything. It's like, probably not true. We probably just don't understand yet what it does. Mm-hmm. You know, and so for a long time, there was, you know, 80% of the DNA is junk DNA. Like, I'm not sure. But that our psyche, you know, this is what Carl Jung would call archetypes is that there are these incredibly potent passions that can come over us that feel like they possess us. And this is how people thought about the gods, you know, thousands of years ago, is that the gods could possess you, but you could also call upon the gods to be in certain ways in the world. Something we know scientifically is that Uh, We have the circuitry in our brain for uh, approaching the world as a prey animal. And we have the circuitry in the brain of approaching the world as a predator, because in our evolutionary history, we were both. And that when you approach the world from the uh, disposition of a prey animal, which is like your, you know, like imagine like a rabbit, you're constantly scanning for danger. You have the felt sense that you are the vulnerable thing that is being preyed on by something else. If something traumatic happens when you're in that psychological state, you're more likely to have symptoms of PTSD. Mm -hmm. When you're in the quote unquote predatorial, but that has a negative connotation in our culture and there's, you know, a long diatribe that could happen with that. But when you're in that stance, which is that you are seeking out, you are going out and finding the thing Um, If a traumatic thing happens, you're less likely to show symptoms of PTSD afterwards. And so an an example of this would be uh, if you're in an emergency situation and you hide, that is putting you in that prey mode. And this is a simplistic example just to make it clear. And I'm not saying don't hide if that's the best option you have. Mm -hmm. But if you have an escape plan and a thing is happening and then you are actively going towards the escape plan, You're in that hunting mode. You're in that you're going out and doing the thing. An example would be like if you were about to go to war, if you had an inner representation of a war god, you could get yourself into the archetypical energy that would help you be a warrior. Mm. Now, it's, it's so much more deep than that because one of the things that is really worth noting, and I hope that this is made clear, is that the last essay that Carl Jung wrote to the world before he died, the main 
focus of emphasis in that essay was not to confuse a sign with a symbol. A sign is something made by man to represent a specific thing. And the example that he gives is a stop sign. Mm -hmm. A stop sign is made by humans to express to humans to stop at the intersection of roads. A symbol is something that spontaneously arises, you know, like the artistic mind that represents something that's infinite. Mm. And the example that he gives is the cross. The cross in some form you can find in almost every culture through every time that we have recorded history. And it's a pointer to something else that can't be comprehended by the conscious mind, like the idea of death and rebirth or the idea of sacrifice and how that can help heal you or the idea of eternity or the idea of like someone can do an act that can save other people. Like there's all these things bound up into that and that these archetypes, these, these gods and goddesses and all of myth is symbol. It's, it's inexhaustive. It, it mm. cannot be fully um, made articulate. Now, the interesting thing is myths at times when they are like long ago, like thousands of years ago, some myths were trying to understand things that are now able to be explained through science. But it, we do this weird thing where it's like we pretend that Zeus is gone because we have meteorology, but there's still this huge like window of randomness that has to do with weather that we don't understand, but mm -hmm. we act as if, you know, like if we just study it long enough, we'll be able to know every possible thing, but we know enough where we can fucking seed clouds. Like that's real shit. And, um, so my true answer to your question about what are these myths and these symbols? I don't know. And no one knows, but I think the way to relate to them is like, the human psyche is so much more fucking fascinating than almost anyone I think gives credit to because it's incomprehensible. And so like we're able to act, we're able to channel other characters. That's what actors do. We're able to tell stories that can change our nature. We have these bodies that are able to mimic other bodies. Like humans are the only animal that can mimic other animals. Now, there's actually some specifics where some animals evolve to mimic a specific other animal, but like we're able to mimic a cat, you know, like people who are really good with their bodies are able to imitate other animals. Um, we dream like there's something inside of us that creates worlds that are indistinguishable from our waking reality when we're in it. We're able to make art. Like we're able to create technology. Like we are, f I don't know what the fuck humans are. You know, like, I don't know what we are. Um, and where it starts to get really weird is it's like, there are people that I know who are able to navigate the psychic space in the presence of other people where it seems as if they produce miracles 
And I don't know what the fuck is going on there, you know? And it brings me back to this core story that Carl Jung would share, you know, in the last couple of decades of his life. And I think I probably have told it here before, but it's the Rainmaker story. And it's the, it's like a blueprint for humans are these things where if we can get in resonance with the moment, it's almost like we're able to bend what happens in that moment to produce miracles. And um, the truth is, is I don't know. <laughs> Thank you. I, um, I'm curious, this made me think about, for some reason, sleep paralysis and how, um, like last night I was dreaming and I was sleeping and uh, I felt, I had my eye mask on and I felt what I would think is a spirit um, hitting the bed like like really aggressively and uh like it had this like eager energy of like wake up get up and um i pulled my eye mask off and i was fully awake and i could still fear feel and hear it so i don't know if that was sleep paralysis or not or if that's what you're talking about that i'm like creating it a bit um so i really thought about my dream and why maybe it was waking me up at that moment the energy didn't feel like a dark energy but it still was like disrupting my sleep. And so I'm, yeah. I'm curious, like what your thoughts are around sleep paralysis, if that was something I created, if sleep paralysis is even really a thing, or if that's something that we're all creating, I don't know. Yeah, so sleep paralysis is something that I get asked about a lot. And it actually is a really interesting, like, portal into uh, how weird this line is between the literal and the mythic. And so... The first thing is that when we say, I just created it, like the I that we identify with is the conscious mind most of the time. And that thing is 1%, if that, of what is going on in our psyche. Mm. Like you have a whole bunch of parts of you that you are not consciously aware of right now. And depending on the environment that you're in and what you need to do to survive in that moment, some other part just pops in. You know, like who you are with your kid is not the same person you are if you're having a confrontation with a drunk person outside is not the same person you are when you're in bed with your lover is not the same person you are when you're at work is not the same person you are when you're talking to your mom. You have a bunch of different people inside of you. So the uh, I just, you know, it's like, that's a thing for us to like, uh, remember that we are not alone in the house of our psyche. Mm. And our ego is a little player it's a fucking it's a small part of everything that's going on inside of us now with sleep paralysis there's good research that shows that the way our perceptual system works is anticipatory that based off of the moment that just happened before and what is happening in our body we're anticipating a certain type of experience in the next moment. And that the emotional state that you're in can literally change what you perceive. If you have a huge surge of fear coming through your body, what you, what you are anticipating to be in the next moment is very different than if you're flooded with love, if you just took MDMA, you know, for example. Mm -hmm. And that when we're asleep, and sleep paralysis is something that most cultures 
have their own versions of it. But the commonality between these versions is that, you know, it happens at night. There's some dark spirit or demon or energy or entity that sits on our chest. Mm -hmm. And what happens when you're dreaming is a part of your brain where will paralyze your muscles so you don't act out your dreams. Mm. But sometimes that paralysis that your brain does to protect your body from acting out your dreams is still going when the ego consciousness starts to wake up. Our evolutionarily programmed response to feeling paralyzed is that there is someone holding us down. And it's, it's hard for us to imagine that we could be held down by something that doesn't have conscious intent, mm-hmm. you know? Uh, and so the anticipate, and also when you're in a sleep paralysis state, the part of the waking dream. So another technical thing to understand about what we currently know about the brain is that waking life is like a set of filters that is able to like condense the like waking dream that's always happening in order for us to see anything that's happening. And so it's called sensory gating is that our conscious mind has all these sensory gates to condense like the imagination that's happening in the background that, that like gives the flood of color and light and feeling to what it is that we perceive And if you do something like a psychedelic, or if you do breath work, or if you get into a hypnagogic state, that sensory gating relaxes, and the imaginal mind, the dreaming mind comes into the forefront. Mm -hmm. And so when you're in sleep paralysis, the sensory gating is reduced. And so the waking dream can start to spill into your perceived objective world. And then there's an entity, or there's Mm -hmm. a thing. I think the usefulness that can be grabbed from it is that something in your unconscious, as it was beginning to be made aware to your conscious mind, was so startling that it it propelled your consciousness out of sleep before your before your body could disinhibit the paralysis it puts on you, but you're still dreaming. And then you have the dream experience of the entity in the room. Mm. And so it's not just made up. It is a sign that there is something in your life that is currently charged powerfully enough with emotion that you want to run away from. Yeah. And so that's an invitation to whatever that thing is. My psyche is trying to bring my awareness to it. Will I bring my awareness to it? But it's like where people get fucked up is if, if it's actually the relationship that they have with their mom and they know that there's something incredibly uncomfortable about where that situation is at, but they believe that they have to go do some type of energy clearing with some type of energy worker that has nothing to do with them trying to work through the very real confrontation with their mom, you're likely misstepping in your path to Mm. be at peace in your own psyche. Yeah. And you don't want to be the type of person who treats the people closest to them in shitty ways and then says, oh, well, I did ketamine and I and I healed what was wrong with us. It's like, no, you haven't fucking talked to me in weeks. 
you can't just go heal it in ketamine. You know, like that is something that I do see that mm-hmm. I think is a part of the modern mythic confusion. Yeah. Mm. Whew. Yeah, that's um, that's really useful. I know I was dreaming about, I was like with these other like Playboy models and we were around these like sugar daddy type guys. And one of the guys like took off towards this van thinking we would all follow him. But I had this intuition that the vans were being used for sex trafficking. And so I was like trying to get everybody to run the other way. And that's when the the hitting happened. Um, yeah, so I'll sit with with that some more as well. But yeah, my, my inclination this morning was like to burn frankincense resin. And, (laughs) um, but you know, and the thing there that I think is worth noting is like, you can, all of these things, they're potent to the degree that they can change your physiological state into the state that you would like it to be, to be effective in your life. And so if burning frankincense calms your nervous system Mm. and that is the goal that you're seeking to do Mm -hmm. then to that degree it's working yeah but the reason we hone having a calm nervous system is so we can face the things in our life that we need to face competently yeah like it's not just about doing all the practices to have a calm like the joke is you know you have a four-hour morning routine and then you go get triggered and then you come back and do four more hours of your like, mm-hmm. like now the truth there is that if you're someone who is sufficiently traumatized, that that's where you have to start. That's absolutely where you have to start. Mm-hmm. But the idea would be use these practices to regulate your nervous system so that if you encounter a situation where you feel like women are being led astray by money to be exploited you can step in to the degree that you feel called to step in and you don't turn away, you don't turn away from that type of thing. Mm. Yeah, that's really beautiful. Thank you. I, I want to tell you a, a really quick dream story uh, that happened in, or that happened the next day. And then I have two more questions if you have the time. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So um, I had a dream. This was like a year ago, but I thought I thought about you and just haven't seen you, but I had a dream that I was like, found this video there was this guy that I dated when I was like 25 and it was before I knew about anxious attachment we were super toxic relationship but god I was so in love with this guy and uh had this dream about a year ago that I found a video of him rapping on my laptop because I thought he was a really good rapper and I just thought like man I wonder if he ever pursued this I think I was the only one that like pushed him to and then I thought should I delete this I was like, no, I'll leave it. So I closed the laptop. That's all I remember about the dream. I haven't seen this guy in 10 years. He doesn't have social media. So there's no, he's not in my sphere or anything. So it's really weird that he showed up in my dream. Doesn't live in the same city as me. And the next day I ran into him at HEB, which is like so fucking weird that he showed up the day after I had that dream. The funny, a funny part that I'll add is that I had been crying that morning and I didn't know, but I had mascara all down this cheek. <laughs> and like, I saw him and he was like in this firefighter, um, you know, uniform and just like looked great and looked happy. And I was like, oh, hi. And then I got in my car and I saw that there was mascara <laughs> all over my face. He's probably like that. She's still a wreck. <laughs> but yeah, isn't that fucking weird? Like, it's yeah, like and, new or something. Right. And so this brings up a point about 
like when I've studied the literature of dreams, uh, mostly through reading Jung, there are examples of things that do not make sense in our uh, like Newtonian physics cause and effect worldview. And uh, he tried to give a word to these type of experiences and he named it synchronicities. And now you see that word everywhere. It actually started with him trying to understand like, there seems to be, here's the model that I have and it's a lie, but it's, it's the most useful model I've been able to put together to try to understand this aspect of experience. And it's that we have like, like if you imagine that you are a fifth dimensional entity and you could see space time, which would be the lower four dimensions um, as like a solid object, you would see this like long tendril like thread. And the beginning of the thread is the moment that the female and male zygote comes together and starts to create your body. And then wherever you are currently is the current end. But then beyond that point are all of these fucking like yet unwoven threads. And it's like at every moment, the choices that you make, it collapses all of those potential threads into, you know, the weaving of your life. And that if you imagine a muscle in a body, there's thousands of these strands of muscle fiber that make up the whole muscle. And I think the people that we connect with, they come like entwined in us in a way where we're able to sense where they are in a way that we don't understand. And almost like the orbits of a planet, uh, we can almost like feel their trajectory starting to come into ours. And depending on how permeable your conscious mind is to, you know, the 99% unconscious processes happening inside of you, you might have experiences that are like premonitions. And I think that this is why there's this constant, you know, like one of the things that I think we misunderstand is that if there's a persistent mythology that stays with humans, there is likely something fundamental in there that is a reoccurring enough pattern where people hold on to the myth about it to try to make sense of it. Premonitions, vampires, demons, angels, aliens, all these type of things there are some type of phenomena that happens in life that have yet to be explained by science adequately that the psyche seems to hold on to these symbols for. And uh, those type of dreams feel like they're um, evidence of that. But it's also worth noting that if you want to bring a type of, like the thing about science that I love, is that they seek to prove their intuitions wrong until they can't. And then they're like, all right, I'll, I'll hold that as a belief about how this shit works. And it's that um, we, unless we are OCD, we don't track all of our dreams and what we think they mean to see how often that, that doesn't come true. Mm. What does happen is that when they do come true, it's such a magnificent event that we remember it. Yeah. And so we like only remember the miracles 
that are linked to our dreams. And we forget the 99% of our dreams that in no way that we can discern have any type of magical effect on what happens in our life. But I think both are true, Mm -hmm. you know, that it's just good mental hygiene to assume it's symbolic, but it also seems to be that there are miracles And most people who want a tidy worldview, who want a finite worldview, they're uncomfortable with that. But I think the people that have the most fun in life are the people that recognize no story, no system of belief will capture the whole thing. Mm. And so the most fun is to be able to hold different reality tunnels, juggle them, and use the one in the moment that best helps you play. Yeah. Thank you. So I have two more questions. We can omit the last one for sake of time if we need to. Um, So the last time I interviewed you, you were studying We by Robert Johnson. And now that you're in a long-term partnership, I'm curious how you've integrated the knowledge that you've gained from it. I know for me, um, something I noticed that I do in relationship is like, I'm constantly feeling like, is this yours or is it mine? You know, like I never know. And that's like really difficult for me is like, Cause I tend to be like, I overstay in a lot of situations, jobs, friendships, everything, because I feel like I must do my work here first. I can't leave from this place. I have to do my work here first, you know? And, but then I, I still never know, like, but is it mine or is it yours? Am I just like, I never know what's a projection, I suppose. And maybe it always is. I don't know. Right. But Yeah. So the model that I use is, uh, when I commit to a long-term relationship, I'm committing to building a garden with that person. And the garden is the co-creative project between the two of us. And uh, both of our projections are content for the garden. Because ultimately, like, um, to the degree that their projection elicits anything within you, which means if you're talking about it at all, there's some of it that's yours. Mm. And I really think that like most of us, when we're in a conversation, and this is most evident when we're in a relationship, is that uh, if we are starting to enter into a finite game style conversation, both people lose. And so, like, if you start to go back and forth with your partner to be like, well, I think that's yours. It's um, if that is being used so that the game can continue to deepen into intimacy, then maybe that's the right move. Mm -hmm. But if that move is being used to stop them from continuing the conversation with you, y'all both lose. Like, for men out there... um, there are often, and I think this is actually, this gets back to the confusion between the literal and the mythic. Um, it tends to be the case that one person is going to be in a charged, mythic, archetypical emotion. And it's not a logical thing. Mm. And the other person will try to logic it away. Or they'll then retreat into an emotion and then it's two gods trying to throw, you know, lightning bolts at each other. But like for me in my relationship, I tend to be the one who tries to keep it literal because that feels safe to me. 
And what I have noticed is that um, because of my competence at like forming logical arguments, if I'm not listening, I will win and then lose. And I think that this is something for people who are good at articulating and using logic. If your partner is feeling something and you logic it away, if you win that, you've just lost the infinite game of the relationship because now they're going to feel more upset. They're going to feel like they're either they can't speak to you, blah, blah, blah. Here's the thing. Yeah. That there's a quote. I forget who it's by and exactly how it goes, but it goes along the lines of uh, saying, I love you is a continuous process of uh, learning how to tell deeper and deeper truths. And you earn the right to say, I love you by the depth of truths that you're able to speak. And Mm so an example of this would be um, just as like play, be your partner, I'll be you and say one of the things that feels like it's projection. Maybe um, it would be something around you're being dogmatic and you're keeping God in a box. That's something that he would say to you. Oh, no, that's something I would say. Okay. So what's something that he would say to you? Mm, um, You're, it would either be like you're reactive, like you don't, you don't like sit with it long enough to be responsive or it would be um, like you don't really know what you're messing with here, like in energy and spirit, like it's, it can be really dangerous. Neither of those. One of the things that I have felt since I was a child was that, um, I didn't feel like the people around me respected uh, me for my intelligence. And when I hear you say that I don't know what I'm dealing with, it feels like there's a young part of me that feels like it's being um, told that it's stupid. That's why it progs at my religious wounding because my intuition wasn't trusted. Yeah. Right. And the key there is um, when someone says something to us that triggers us, uh, if we can, in the moment, like close our eyes and feel into why it's triggering, and we just admit why it's triggering, Mm -hmm. that gives the opportunity for the conversation to transform into um, intimacy because there's a truth being shared, there's a vulnerability happening. Now, the other person might get defensive to that and then continue to be defensive. But if whatever they say in response to that is, you know, the eyes closed, trying to feel into what core story is happening, um, it it can continue to invite them into that game. Mm -hmm. A thing to connect to is that, like, no one in a relationship that I've ever met is clear of core stories that are actually untrue 
that rule their life and that get activated when they have a challenging conversation with a loved one. Mm -hmm. And so because that's true, it's really hard to do because like there's a part of us that wants to emotionally punch back if we feel like we got hit. But if we can receive the hit and then own why it even landed, you know, because like if your partner said you're an insect or like you're a dude, yeah. you know, like it's Nothing. just, it, it just passes through you. But if it lands and you feel it, there is something there for you. Mm. And, you know, it's not quote unquote fair if they just continue to punch and punch and punch and you're continuing to drop in and drop in and drop in. And there is a very real place for boundaries. But also a thing that I see in the spiritual space is that um, people will consciously, violently use boundaries as a way to punish. And they mm -hmm. take no ownership for the fact that they're actually punishing the other person yeah and uh you know it's like people that use nonviolent communication violently it's almost like that's worse. yeah 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 mm, thank you so the last question was going to be around fatherhood like um one of our mutual friends said that that's something you're studying and that it's been really beautiful but maybe you can just share it on a solo cast of yours or i'm sure you'll be sharing it on a post soon because i know we're we're right at 90 minutes. Um, I can get into it for a little bit. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Um, one of the things that I've been playing with is uh, I can feel that there's a part of me that is starting to like step into the archetype of being a father, even though I don't have kids yet. And I can feel how it's like changing the gravity of my life in the sense mm -hmm. that like anyone who doesn't have kids uh, and a lot of people who don't have kids don't like to hear this, but if you don't have kids, it is incredibly hard to orient yourself to life where there's someone else who is truly fundamentally irrevocably more important than you. Yeah. And so there's this, like, there's this, just the center of the gravity of what we care about is still centered on us. Mm -hmm. And, um, I think one of the things that that does is it makes it hard to think about how to behave in the world in a way that is good for the next generation and the next generation. It doesn't mean it's impossible. It's just harder. And that like, there are a bunch of things in my life that I'm not in the type of accord I would like to be in by the time that I have children, like the way that I eat. Like I order out a bunch, I have a bunch of waste in a way that like I can feel it gnaws on me. Um, I don't understand survival skills in almost any way. You know, I think that most people who grow up in cities, like we're like atrophied deeply about like fundamental skills about like how to know what direction is what when you don't have a landmark or a phone or Mm -hmm. how to fucking make a fire or how to dress your own food and how to uh, cook food if you don't have a kitchen and things like that. Um, I don't treat my finances in a way where I'm actually thinking about the next generation. Uh, I don't consume clothing and things I buy online in a way where I'm thinking about the next generation. Uh, I don't approach my work 
in a way where I really think about the next generation. And the thing that I've been cultivating for myself is like, how can I weave all the things that I love in a way where they're being expressed through me in a way that I would feel good about my children imitating because they're going to see me do my life. Mm -hmm. And so I've been using that as kind of like a psychological frame to start to hone parts of me that I'm like, did I express myself in a way today that if my children watched me and imitated me, I would be Mm. proud of. That's really good. And something I love about the father archetype and the mother archetype is that it's not being a mother or father to our children, it's to all children. And that's something I'm really trying to sharpen in myself is that um, when a kid is like, especially now I have some more understanding now that I've found out I'm on the spectrum, uh, from what I've gathered, what's triggering of autistic symptoms is when something is out of harmony with nature. So when I'm around a kid that's extremely dysregulated or, or just like, um, uh, like really their, um, nervous system is like a trigger for me for for some reason. I just want to get away from that kid. I'm not the nurturer. I'm not the protector, you know, like I just want to get away and I'm really working on coming to a place where I can act as a mother, even to that child. And it's really fucking hard for me. Um, I've also noticed that in coaching sessions, I feel like I've gotten to a point where there's nothing a client can say that startles me. I can hold anything in the container. I don't have that with my children, you know? So those are things that I'm really working on in my mother archetype. But Yeah. The thing that I have found that intuitively comes up for me is that whenever I'm around a kid that's dysregulated, I start to hum. Mm. you know and I like Mm -hmm. even if it's like imperceptible I just kind of do the humming to myself Mm -hmm. because whether or not it's true I believe that it like regulates me even further yeah and then if I hold the child and I'm humming I have found so far that it's 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 like a fucking spell Mm, yeah that's uh in the Dallas uh tantric arts book humming is like one of the uh one of the core practices so okay so I'm sure you remember answering these questions in the past, but I end every show with a lightning round. The first question is, if you could hug your younger self right now, what would you say? What age? What age needed the biggest hug? Probably 19-year-old, and I would say... um, The answer that you're looking for is the infinite game. Mm. <laughs> if you could have the whole world read one book, which would it be? Finite and infinite games. Yeah. Okay. If you could whisper one phrase to everyone on the planet, what would it be? You're an infinite player who has forgot that they have forgot. Mm. I keep seeing the little clip of you in the Aubrey's ayahuasca um, film saying, welcome to the game. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that worked out pretty perfectly. Yeah. And it it came out, uh, I think the same week as the other articles. So um, you, you brought up remembering, and I know you wrote on your social media that the ancient meaning of remember is to bring those outside the village back in. And something that I want to, um, 
just acknowledge you for and and uh, thank you for is that you what I've noticed is when you speak to people, you speak to their king or their queen and how powerful that is. And um, it's really like you were when um, we text, you'll say, hey, queen. And it just there's something that changes in my posture. And it's just so powerful to speak to that in people. And I know that in the past, I did that from a codependent place and not from an empowered place. And I can feel that you're doing it from such an empowered place. And, and that's why it has that um, reaction right away. So I just want to thank you for that and for the energy of that, that you've brought to my life and, um, yeah, for all of your work and all of your wisdom. Lastly, if you can just let people know where to find you online. Yeah. Uh, thank you for that. And, um, I feel seen (laughs) and, uh, my podcast is the myths that make us, you know, it's on on all the major platforms. My website is ericgotzi.com, G-O-D-S-E-Y. And my Instagram is the same, Eric Gotzi. Thank you. Awesome. Thank you so much. Have a beautiful day. You too. All right, you guys. Ah, I... I feel like I could never get enough time with him, which like, I hope I'm not like a... I don't feel like um like one of those leeches that's just like, give me more, give me more. But he just, I could just ask him questions all day long. And I've noticed that like at social gatherings, people tend to line up to ask him questions, but I'm so, so thankful for his answers. And I just, um, there's never been an answer of his that didn't resonate. Like he just, he's, um, I don't know the the amount of research that he's done and and just the amount of like inner wisdom um and truth that flows from him it just uh I could just sit there all day and listen to it even if they're not my questions and so I highly recommend uh on his Instagram he does IG lives but then he posts them to his page so if you enjoyed this he's got like hour and a half long IG lives where he just answers questions and which is also like really cool to me that he can just like I didn't send him this outline. He just was ready for anything. And that's what's so cool about his IG lives. It's like, he can answer any question. It's really cool. But I noticed that in the first um, question, we didn't actually go over the 10 common distortions. So I just want to list those for you really quick. And you can go to his Instagram to go deeper into it. But the first one is polarized thinking. So like Bill Gates is the new Hitler. If you're white, you're a racist. The CDC is always true. The CDC is always false, right? So polarized thinking. Number two is overgeneralization. So person A thinks because a mass shooting happened, all guns should be banned. Person B perceives any suggestion of gun reform as evidence of a deep state Marxist takeover. Okay. And then distortion three, mind reading. They're just trying to make money. They're just trying to show off their body. They're just haters. The truth is we don't know why others do what they do, but we could ask them and have a conversation. Distortion four is labeling. Crazy, evil, stupid, sheeple, racist, alt-right, far left, all of those things. And then uh, to quickly go through the, the five through 10, catastrophizing, personalization, shooting, discounting the positive, mental filtering, and emotional reasoning. Um, so that's all around cognitive behavioral therapy, which is... Um, David Burns, if you want to look more into that David Burns book, Feeling Good. And I think you brought up David Burns in this episode as well. But I know we didn't we didn't actually go into the 10. And I, oh, man, if we go into conflict, 
like he said, you know, not having conflict is not having unity. If, if we go into conflict and being aware of those 10 um, things that we might be doing, it can be really, really helpful. And it's something that I'm striving for in my own life. All right. So if you'd like to support this podcast, you can do so by leaving a review or sharing this episode with a friend. And you could also support one of our affiliates, Gene Keys, G-E-N-E keys.com. Gene Keys has changed my life, y'all. It is a very amazing tool at self-realization and um, just journeying into the self. They have tons of free resources on there, but they also have courses around love around, um, you know, success or abundance, uh, how to use your dreams as messengers. If you use my affiliate link, I'll get a small little cut on anything that you do on there. It's genekeys.com forward slash the dash dream dash ARC forward slash REF forward slash 1707. That's also in the show notes, guys. It's also in my Instagram bio. Best toys for sex at dameproducts.com. Code Jade gets you 15% off. I love the suction toy and I like to pair it with my pleasure wand or my yoni egg. I get my um, those tools at wands, W-A-A-N-D-S.com. And code Jade gets you a discount there. Uh, I actually teach women how to use the pleasure wand and the yoni egg. And it is Man, the things you can do, y'all, it is amazing. All right, all things CBD at directtemp.com, code Jade for a discount there, and then higher dose infrared products, code Jade75 for $75 off. Thank you guys so much for tuning in and being on this journey with me. It would mean so much if you would leave that review or share an episode with a friend. You can also join me on Instagram at Untamed and Unashamed Podcast. As always, be a light, stay open, and remember... You belong here.